The catechism reading that we will be doing today is taken from uh, Lord's Day 13 with regards to being called, Christ being called God's only begotten Son. And so in connection with that, we will be reading from 1 John 3, the verses 1 to 23. 1 John 3, the verses 1 to 23. And you'll be able to find that on page 1400 of your pew Bible. Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called children of God. Therefore the world does not know us, because it did not know Him. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when He is revealed, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. Whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. And you know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him there is no sin. Whoever abides in him does not sin. Whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous. He who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. Whoever has been born of God does not sin, for his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin because he has been born of God. In this, the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. For this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Not as Cain, who was of the wicked one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his works were evil and his brothers righteous. Do not marvel, my brethren, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, because he laid down his life for us. And we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. And by this, we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. For if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence toward God. And whatever we ask, we receive from Him because we keep His commandments and do those things that are pleasing in His sight. And this is His commandment, that we should believe on the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as He gave us commandment. Now He who keeps His commandments abides in Him. And He in him. And by this we know that he abides in us 
by the Spirit whom he has given us. So far the word of God. We'll also be reading from the Heidelberg Catechism. And we'll be reading Lord's Day 13, which you can find on page 528 of your book of praise. Why is he, that is Jesus, called God's only begotten Son, since we also are children of God? Because Christ alone is the eternal, natural Son of God. We, however, are children of God by adoption, through grace, for Christ's sake. Why do you call him our Lord? Because he has ransomed us, body and soul, from all our sins, not with silver or gold, but with his precious blood, and has freed us from all the power of the devil to make us his own possession. Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior, do you have older brothers? For those of you who do, what kind of relationship do you have with that brother? Many of you have good and caring brothers. Those who look out for their littler siblings and who show their love in doing fun projects with them or taking them out to different places. Such brothers have also gone through college or university ahead of you and have helped you through the system of paperwork or warned you about pitfalls that you might face in the workforce if you've chosen to go that direction instead. Some of you, on the other hand, have less fond memories of your older brothers. What does it bring to mind for you that Jesus Christ is called your older brother? Some of you have mixed relationships with your parents as well. Think on this. What does it mean to you that God the Father paid an immense, an infinite cost, giving up his most precious possession? his most precious relationship, just so that you could be welcomed into the family of God. He paid that not just for anyone, not just for believers in general, but he paid that for you. Many of you are familiar with a beloved hymn that is based on the passage we read today. Behold the amazing gift of love the Father has bestowed on us, the sinful sons of men, to call us sons of God. And it's true, isn't it? To behold is to see or to fix your gaze on something. And what better word could we use than that to describe the way that we look towards the hope of the ages? The fact that God the Father has looked on us and chosen to pour out His love upon us is absolutely breathtaking. Now we know that although it just talks about sons here, there's no question about daughters being included as well. Boys and girls, when this kind of language is used in situations like this in the Bible, it's talking about all of God's people. It's like when you say to a mixed group of friends, hey guys, Guys usually refers to boys and men. But in that kind of a situation, you know that nobody's being left out. Everybody's being included. In our text, the Apostle John is using that kind of language, the language of sonship, to say, everyone, take a moment just to look at that promise. Just think about those words for a moment. Isn't it wonderful that we, men and women, Boys and girls, 
can be called children of God. And it is. It's truly incredible. For those of us who believe we are children of the Most High God, co-heirs and brothers and sisters of the kingdom of the King of Heaven. And so today we'll see that under the following theme and points, to be called sons of God. We'll see, first of all, adopted, second, ransomed, and third, loved and loving. The first thing that our catechism points out today in contrast with the first verse of our passage is that we are not the natural sons of God. And some people see that as a bit of a disappointment. Christ is the only begotten Son of God. In Hebrews 1 verse 5, God says, For to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my Son, today I have begotten you? The answer to that question is none of them. And he didn't ever say that to any humans either. Christ alone is the only natural begotten Son of God, the only begotten Son of God from eternity. So where does that leave us? We are not the natural sons of God. We are not part of the triune Godhead. And yet we read in our passage, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called children of God. Beloved, this should not be a reason for disappointment, but it should be a reason for awe. We are called children of God. We're not just part of the family of God once. By nature, we are strangers to this gospel of grace. We, we were not, pardon me, we were not a part of the family of God once. And by nature, we are strangers to this gospel of grace. But God, in His great love from eternity, called us out of the darkness into His wonderful light. He called us to join Him in the family of God. As we read in Ephesians 1, the verses 4 to 5, the Father chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ Himself, according to the good pleasure of His will. But doesn't the fact that we are adopted make us less somehow? Doesn't the word adoption mean that this child belongs less to your family than your so-called real children? Try telling that to an adoptive parent. In most families, when you invite a child into your home and you adopt them into your family, they become your sons and daughters. And if this is true in this broken world, how much more is it true for a father in heaven who not only is the perfect father, but is able to perfect his children? We are his real children. Consider Galatians 4 verse 6 for a moment. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts crying out, Abba, Father. You are sons and daughters of God. This is not just something you are called or a reality that's less true because you are adopted. If you believe in Jesus Christ, you are children of God. 
And in the time that John was writing this for his audience, this was even more true than we can wrap our minds around it today. We have this one picture of adoption, but in the Roman world, it was completely different. So which ones are your actual kids? That kind of question would be completely foreign to John's audience. It wouldn't even cross their minds. In the Roman system, which John lived under, they didn't care about genetics. If you were adopted, it didn't matter how young or old, how poor or low status or whatever else you were, you became that person's son and legally heir to absolutely everything. It didn't even matter if you had been a slave. There was no difference in the way that you would be treated from a natural son. Nobody would look down on you or look differently at you because you were adopted. It was just, no, he's the son. But even setting this legal question aside, you may say, well, there's still an emotional difference. But God loves with a perfect love. He loves with infinite love. And he loves us with the same love that he loves Jesus Christ with because that's the kind of God he is. He doesn't love differently because we're adopted. It's not part of his character to love differently. Love is one of his perfections. And to suggest that he would love us differently as a human parent might love differently is to suggest that he would be less than God. But he isn't. God is God. And the love with which we are loved is the most perfect love, bought for us by the ransom of the blood of Jesus Christ, his son. And this brings us to our second point, ransomed. We belong to God with Jesus as our Lord and older brother because he made it possible through the ransoming of us, body and soul. But what does it mean to be ransomed? To be ransomed means that he paid the price that hung over our heads, resulting in what would have rightfully been a sentence of eternal death before a perfect God being transformed into a declaration of sonship. As our catechism says, he has ransomed us, body and soul, from all of our sins, not with silver or gold, but with his precious blood. And he's freed us from all the power of the devil to make us his own possession. Bought with his precious blood. He came down from heaven. He willingly suffered and died to pay the price which hung over us. Boys and girls, it's your brother who did this. Think of the nicest thing your other brothers have done for you. How does that compare? What incredible love. It's God the Father who allowed his eternal natural son to go through this for you. This is free grace, but not cheap grace. It came at an incredible cost. But not only is it the fact that it is our brother who did this, he is our Lord. Having bought us with his precious blood, we now become his own possession. And that's an important point to remember. 
Because having been bought by Jesus Christ, we no longer belong to ourselves, but we belong to Him. We are joined to Him. That means that since our situation is different, we are called to live in that new life. We are called to be different. Living out of not only the rights and privileges of sonship, but also the responsibilities of being called a son of God that come with it. Now, being sons and daughters, these responsibilities are built up in verses 4 to 9, and then more fully described in verses 10 to 15 of our passage as not abiding in death. And the argument is this, you've been moved from death into life, so why live in a way that promotes death? In fact, in reality, he concludes, it's impossible to live in a way that promotes death because you have the love of Christ in you. But before we get into that detail, to that in detail, we need to slow down for a moment and look at a verse which might seem rather confusing at first glance. That's verse 6. We read there, whoever abides in him does not sin. Whoever sins has neither seen him or known him. There's a heresy in the early church, still carried on in some circles today, that's called the heresy of perfectionism. And that's the idea that when you are a spirit-filled believer, you cannot sin. Perfection can be had in this life. And if you do sin, then you are clearly not a Christian and you need to repent and convert and become one and live perfectly. Is that what he's saying here? Well, consider the context for a moment in which John is writing. For this, let's go back a few pages to, in the letter of John, to 1 John 1, the verses 8 to 10. What does he say there? If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. In Christ, those who believe are brought from death into life. And this means that their sins, which are still there, and you can find a description of the struggle of the Christian life more fully in Romans chapter 7. But those sins which are still there are covered by Christ's payment, meaning that there is no condemnation for them. Christ's ransom has, as our catechism says, ransomed us from our sins and freed us from any power the devil had to tempt us to the point of eternal condemnation. He can tempt us to sin but he can't make us fall from grace. He doesn't have the power to do that. Legally, we are under the law of the spirit of life. Our sins don't count against us because they are placed on Jesus Christ. We are not yet perfect or sinless, but in that way, we are no longer under the rule of sin. So if you look at John's writing here, he's not being contradictory. Because he's writing about our position in Christ. 
That is, as he writes in verse 5 of our text, he was manifested, meaning he appeared, he was manifested to take away our sins. And in him there is no sin. Whoever abides in him doesn't sin. Whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. He is describing here the logical consequence of what he has just said about Jesus. If the pur- purpose of Christ's appearing was to abolish sins, and his eternal nature is sinless, it follows that the person who lives in him should be similarly without sin. So what John's saying is this. While we are in Christ, we are kept from sin because it is impossible to be in Christ and sin at the same time. While we are under Christ's rule, his seed remains in the Christian. God dwells in the Christian. The tricky thing is that when we do sin, we can't blame that on the Holy Spirit. And we can't blame that on Christ's rule in our lives. Because Christ is perfect. And he and sin are on opposite sides of the coin. Where one is, the other is not. So what's going on here? Christ's ransom doesn't mean instant freedom from temptation to sin or the instant stopping of sin in our lives. But it was, what it does mean is that being joined to Christ by the Holy Spirit, those sins are no longer held against us. More than that, the dominion, which is the ruling of sin, is taken from over us. The ability of sin to trap us and keep us and drag us down into hell is taken away because when we... Is, is taken away because we have the Spirit ruling in our lives. That's what Jesus Christ bought for us when He ransomed us. Not only are we declared righteous, but since it is impossible to be in the Spirit and sin at the same time, He bought us a shelter to run to in times of temptation. No longer can sin and lawlessness hang over us like a cloud wherever we go because there is a place in our lives that we can run to where it is not allowed to go. Where it is impossible for both sin and God's dwelling to be at the same time. A place that Christ has bought for us with His blood. The difficulty is that while we have that place of refuge in our lives, we have the tendency to stay out in the storm if I can take the metaphor a little bit further. By the power of the Spirit, our life is slowly being taken over. As it says in the Canons of Dort, chapter 3, 4, article 12, the heart being acted upon, acts. Because the Holy Spirit has moved us, we're slowly surrendering more and more of our lives to Christ's Lordship. We are Christ's possession, but we are slowly surrendering our lives to his lordship. There are places in our lives that we hold out from him. And where Christ rules, there is no sin. Because it is impossible for Christ to both rule and for sin to be the result. So sin is slowly choked out in your life as your life is taken over and surrendered to God's control, as you repent and turn to Him again. The rule of sin is broken. 
Without his ransoming us from sin, this would be impossible. But with his ransom and with his spirit, we can look ahead and make war against sin in our lives and strive to subject every corner of our life to his rule. But it's a process. And it's one in which we ourselves are involved. Being acted upon, we act. And so we see in verse 3 that everyone who has this hope purifies himself just as Christ is pure. Now, Christ is Lord in your life has a consequence. And we can see this in our final point. Having established that the rule of Christ and the rule of sin cannot exist side by side, we're brought to this conclusion that either sin is being choked out and put to death as Christ's rule expands in your life, or he says you are a child of the devil and you are called to repent with fear and trembling. Because there were those who were saying, all right, Christ has bought me. Christ's rule is in my life. I'm free. That means there are no consequences, right? I can go on and sin. And he says, no, if you embrace sin in this way, you are a child of the devil, and you're called to repent with fear and trembling. Now, this is not meant to say that the moment you catch yourself doing a sin, you're suddenly a child of the devil, or that you are a child of God one moment, a child of the devil the next, and then a child of God when you repent again. That's, that's not how it works. But what John says is a clear marker of whether you're a child of God or a child of the devil is the question of who rules in your heart. Does Christ rule in your heart? Or does the devil rule in your heart? Are you turning to recognize Jesus Christ as Lord in your life? Are you begging Him to rule over your life by the power of His Spirit? Or are you using it as an opportunity to turn to sin and say, I'm covered, it's okay. Jesus has this covered and so I can do what I want. This rule, John says, comes out in your actions. In verse 10, he says, Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. If you are truly under the loving rule of your sovereign King Jesus, then love rules in your heart. Now, love doesn't mean that you don't hold people accountable. In our world today, to be loving means that someone can almost get away with murder. In fact, it's, it's been argued that if there's a cannibalistic tribe in the jungle, the loving thing is not to bring them the gospel that they can be brought from darkness into light, but to respect their traditions, to respect their way of life. You just need to be understanding and tolerant of them and not corrupt their society with Western values. Leave them in peace. That's not the kind of love that Jesus is talking about. We can see how throughout his life, Christ held those around him accountable. He was even quite heated at times. But that flowed out of the love that was within him. It flowed out of his fierce love for his father and his desire for those around him to share in the love of his father. And so that being said, 
what you cannot do is claim to have the love of God in you and claim to have Christ ruling in you and then turn around and hate someone. That, John says, is a marker of the world. In fact, he says, don't be surprised if the world hates you because the world is simply doing what the world does, acting out the hate that comes from the devil. But true love comes in this, that while we were yet enemies, Christ, our older brother and our Lord, died for us. While we were enemies, he died for us. So how can we see a brother or a sister in Christ and hate them? How can we shut our hearts to them when they're in need? My little children, he says in verse 18, let's not just say that we love people, but let's truly love them. Let's act on it. And when we find ourselves acting towards them in love, when we do find ourselves acting towards them in love, even contrary to the sinful nature that rages inside us and tells us it's not fair and we need to punish them, when we do see ourselves acting towards them in love despite that, that's the marker, he says, that Christ's love dwells in us. Now, don't get me wrong, this is not a call for you to put yourself in a compromising situation with someone who might harm you or harm themselves through your relationship. That would not be acting in love. But this is a call for a willingness to love even the unlovable just as Christ loved you. And to recognize that when we do act in love towards them, even in a small way, that this is God's love at work in us. It's God's work. carrying on in our text. For if our heart condemns us, says, telling us we're acting hypocritically, telling us we don't truly mean it, that this isn't truly coming out of love, when our heart condemns us, when we try to act towards someone in love, God is greater than our hearts. And He knows all things. Verse 20. And even better, beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, then we have confidence toward God. Because we know, we know that now we have the proof of His work within us. The fact that we want to serve God and do the things that are pleasing in His sight, that we want to put to death this hate in our lives towards our brother, are proof that He is at work in us. Heed that final call of John and believe. But don't just believe. Live out that belief. With Christ as your brother, your older brother who has your back and who has already accomplished all that's necessary for your salvation and who gives you His Spirit to work through you, you're given that strength to fight. You're given the strength to do hard things, things that might even seem impossible to you right now because He is conquering your heart. And where He lives, you can find peace.
from your temptation and your sin. And it's okay if you fail because you can flee to him. He will be there picking you up and comforting you and drying your eyes as you repent from sin again. He is your older brother who has already done everything for you and to whom you can look not just as your savior, but as your example to pick up the fight again, to even love your enemies as he loved you. He gives you the strength to become what you already are in him, someone who's more than his sins and his shortcomings, someone who has been bought with a price, adopted by the Most High God, and someone who is a brother or sister to the King of Heaven. Amen.